With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to Tennis.com podcast Inside the Tour. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nina Pantic. On this episode, I'll be joined by Rena Falcone and our special guest, Gigi Fernandez. Gigi won 17 Grand Slam doubles titles and two Olympic gold medals. She retired at the age of 33, and she also happened to have won six French Open titles. Since retiring, she had some starts and stops in terms of what she wanted to do with her life and talked pretty candidly about all the businesses and things she looked into before eventually finding her way back to tennis. Now she runs GigiFernandezTennis.com and spreads her knowledge of doubles with the world with the Gigi method. Let's hear from Gigi Fernandez. Welcome, Gigi Fernandez, the Tennis.com podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I want to know what brings you to Tampa. Last time we talked, you were up here in the, the New York area. So what's what's made you move down south? The weather. <laughs> yeah, I thought that Tampa, um, you know, I, when I was working in uh, Connecticut, I was teaching the same 100 people week in, week out. I was a director at a club and worked at a facility, and I just wanted to reach more people. So I felt like if I moved to a place where the climate was better and people would want to travel um, and play tennis, that they might come visit me in Tampa. So that, so that's what I did. I moved down here. I have family here, so which worked. But I um, partnered with the Innisbrook Resort and Spa, and I um, have been offering three-day camps over there. And we and they're being really successful. People come like in groups of eight or sixteen, and um, we play tennis for three days and learn doubles and. Uh, it's a very fun camp. It's very different than your typical um, camps that, that you might visit because it's strictly focused on doubles. And it's amazing how quickly you can improve at doubles just by learning the game and not you not working on your forehand or your backhand or your serve and you know having to spend hours working on improving your strokes, but how much you can improve by actually just understanding the game better and understanding what's what shot you, you should be hitting, where should you be standing, what's high percentage, what's low percentage, and that, and that's what we focus on. I mean, Florida is definitely the place to be for tennis. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah. For anyone that might not know this, like you're pretty much, you were the Roger Federer of doubles in a sense. You've got 17 Grand Slam titles, six of which are the French Open, which is coming up pretty quick. I mean, you've won 69 titles in doubles court. Did you ever, when you finished your career at the age of 33, I think, did you ever have a, a path for what you wanted to do right after? Because right now you're very entrenched in, in doubles clinics and doubles instruction and the, the Gigi method. No, I didn't. And, you know, when I look back at my career, I really wish I had played longer. Um, you know, now back in my era, it was hard to play past your 30s. Very few people did. Um, now players take way better care of their bodies and they're better shape and they have a better support system and they play longer. But back then, 33 seemed like I was ancient. Um, and I did not know what I was going to do. And it was a really difficult transition. I struggled a lot for a lot of years, um, trying to do different things that were not in the tennis world. And, 
And finally, I just decided to come back to what I knew and where my passions lie, which is tennis. And, you know, when I had the opportunity to become the director of tennis at Chelsea Piers back in 2012, and that's really when I came back into the game and really rediscovered my passion for it and found a niche um, teaching adults uh, recreational adults how to play. I taught everything. I've taught everything from three-year-olds to Grand Slam champions. Um, I've taught a lot of juniors and college player. I coached uh, at the college level, but I really found that this is what I love. I love working with adults um, and it's my need. I love it. I have made some incredible friends throughout the years and um, they don't, they don't speak back to me like juniors used to do and <laughs> they don't have annoying parents like some juniors can have and sorry for the parents out there that are annoying so it's really it really works it's you know I get like I said I made some great friends and um, I have a lot of knowledge to share and I found a population of people who really want to learn from me so it's been great I believe you're the first player I've actually ever heard say that they wanted to play longer. Most players are like, please get me out of this sport, but that's pretty incredible. But that I, that's how I felt when I retired. That's how I was definitely had had it. But looking back at my career, right when I quit, you know, I once, um, you know, I, I think I was a little burned out when I quit. And I think if I had not announced my retirement that I might've gone back to play, but I announced it and it was like a big deal and, once you announce it, like it's really hard to go back. But I mean, I was I, when I retired, I was number one in the world. I we'd won the French and the, uh, Wimbledon and made the finals of the U.S. Open the year that Natasha and I um, the year that I retired. So so I mean, I probably had maybe two or three more good years in me. And uh, but you know, never know what would happen. And you can't go back. So I have no regrets. But I just wish that. Um, maybe I hadn't pulled the trigger so soon. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. When you, once you announce uh, retirement, it's almost like shooting yourself in the foot a little bit because you can't really take it back. Um, unless you're Leighton Hewitt and you just keep coming back no matter what. But the fact that you retired when you're number one in the world, I mean, why not retire when you're at the top, right? It's, it's Well, that was what I wanted. I mean, really, in hindsight, it was really dumb. <laughs> I probably would have made another at least a couple million more dollars if I had played a little bit longer. But, um, but it, you know, it was what it was. Like I, I was at a point in my life where it, it just seemed like I had achieved everything that I could achieve, and it, my life, you know, and the main issue was that Natasha and I weren't going to play together anymore. So when we were chasing Martina and Pam, like we were, we had. Um, I think four or five Grand Slams to go to tie them for the most Grand Slams in history. When we were chasing them, that seemed like a motivating goal. Like you always have to have something to motivate you. But um, but if I wasn't going to play with her, then just winning another Grand Slam was not motivating me anymore because I had won 17. So I, I remember always saying like, okay, so I won 17. So if I won 18, how would my life change? And the and I couldn't. The answer was like it wouldn't change. But if I was chasing history, then that might have continued to motivate me. So because I didn't have that option, then I, I chose to, to uh, retire. Wow, that's incredible. So you kind of know what you're talking about when it comes to doubles. I'm not surprised there. <laughs> um, so my question is, you know, a lot of players have a struggle once they retire, once they stop playing. They really just have no idea what they they want to do. Some players either go on vacation, some just don't want to touch a racket. What was your immediate um, kind of, what was your life like right after you retired? So, I mean, fortunately, I had just met Jane Geddes, who is now my wife of 22 years. And she was still on the LPGA. She was still on the professional tour. So I became obsessed with golf. And golf was kind of my outlet and my my competitive outlet. Like I, I would just go to the golf course with her every day and we'd be at the course, you know, four or five hours and 
And, um, you know, I remember like the, the hardest thing for me was like golf is not a workout. So we would go play and she would be driving the cart and I would be jogging alongside the car to the, to the ball. So I literally would jog around the golf course because I, I didn't feel like I was getting my, my exercise. Um, so that took, a, that took off, you know, a bit of my mental sort of, uh, capacity. Like basically I was just so concentrated on becoming a scratch golfer that that was what was driving me. I had something that was driving me. And if I hadn't ha- hadn't had that, I don't know what I would have done. And then, and then of course, of uh, several years later, I became a mom and that was 10 years ago, I became a mom. And once that happened, then, then you find your purpose again, right? Because for a lot of years, I felt like I really had no purpose and no passion. And I was kind of just like uh, living off um, my past and not really doing anything that was fulfilling necessarily. And then once I became a mom, then um, that all changed because that being a parent is to me the most important job that I've had anyways. There's a scary time there. I mean, becoming a parent, obviously, all of that is, is going to give you a lot of fulfillment. But there's a scary moment, I think, when you stop playing because your entire identity yes. changes. And there's a few players, notably, you know, you have Roger Federer coming back, playing the French Open for the first time, which which many are calling probably one of his last, maybe one of his last appearances. And everyone's really terrified of what's going to happen when we don't have Federer, we don't have Serena, we don't have Venus. Like, what are we all going to do? It's like, what are they going to do? I mean, I think they'll be okay. Um, but there's a huge identity crisis, right? Yeah. And, you know, they'll be okay because they're, they were so good. They're such a part of the sport that they'll continue to be part of the sport. But it's the players that are from like, you know, 20, 30 down to the hundreds that have dedicated their whole lives, you know, 20, 30 years of, to this one thing and then they retire and tennis is no longer there. And, th- and to me, those are the people who really struggle. And for me, you know, I, ha- I, I had this like a constant fight with myself because I did not want to be known as Gigi Fernandez, the tennis player. Once I retired, I did not w- want that to be my identity. I tried really hard to do other things. I mean, I did. I had my real estate business. I had I, I had a wine cellar business. I had a travel business. I, I, I started so many. I had a weight loss business. I had so many businesses all failed. Most of them failed, not all failed, but not, not as successful because I didn't really know those industries. And, you know, then I decided to go back and get my MBA and really learn how to run a business, which is, uh, you know, probably should have done it the other way around. I should have gotten the MBA first, but you know, once I got the MBA, it's like, okay, now I understand how to run a business. Now let's turn what I know, which is tennis into a business. And Gigi Fernandez tennis has been very, very successful. Um, you know, even probably more so than in a way it's doing better than when I'm doing better now than when I was playing. So, um, so, so that's been really rewarding to, to really make it about giving, sharing my knowledge. And that's my passion. You know, I found, I found a mission in life, which was I'm sharing my, my, I'm sharing my knowledge of tennis and how can I do that? What, how many ways can I possibly um, share my knowledge of tennis? And that's what I do. And that's what kind of drives me right now. I mean, do you think that the path you took after you finished playing, you went from, you know, I don't want to be associated with tennis, you went through this this phase of doing everything else. I feel like that kind of led you to where you are, right? Because there's a moment where you have to disassociate and then rediscover your passion. Yes, correct. And then come back. And I was very lucky that I came back. The, how I found my passion again was when I was the director of Chelsea Piers. And I was surrounded by a great group of, of uh, adults and juniors too, but I had a great staff that I worked with and it just, you know, starting to see tennis from the other side, not from the being the, you know, entitled professional 
tennis player, but actually from the business side and from how do you run a tennis club and how do you, you know, cater to the members and how do you really the business side of tennis and learning that. And then again, all the friendships that I made um, were, were really critical because I had some great friends who really loved tennis, who helped me kind of fall in love with tennis again. So, um, so yeah, I was kind of lucky that that situation uh, at Chelsea Pierce came around and, and then from then I, you know, being at, being in the, on the court with recreational players for, you know, 20 hours a week, uh, is how I d- developed the GG method, which is, um, how I played, but really modified for recreational players because, um, skill set obviously is different. So, and the G method has been very successful. Um, you know, probably over, I don't know, somewhere like seven or 8,000 players have gone through it. So that's been really well. That's fantastic. I just wanted to touch back on um, what you were talking about earlier when you were saying all these businesses that you tried um, uh, with the weight loss one, the real estate and all those different businesses that you tried. Did you feel like you were just chasing something? Did you feel like you were trying to just because obviously you were so successful in the tennis world? And did you feel like you wanted to do the same and in the business? First one, which I forgot to mention was I had an startup back in 1998. Before uh, Google Shopping or Amazon, I had this idea to create a universal shopping cart. Um, And I had a startup company. We had 25 employees, and I raised over $3 million in venture money. And then the bubble burst. Um, Then it was really ugly after that. Um, But, yeah, I I just wanted to be successful at something, at something other than tennis. And and I think the mistake that I made, and I think the mistake a lot of us make, is that we're so used to doing anything like when you're that successful at something, you can, you think you can do anything. You know, you think, Oh, I'll just start an internet company and I'll be successful. Well, no, because I don't really know anything about the internet and I didn't know anything about running a business. And, um, like I kind of learned that lesson the hard way. And so, yeah. On a personal note, I can totally relate to what you're saying because, um, last year in September, I just decided I was like, there was a moment when I was playing where I was like, I need to take a break because I'm a little burnt out and I just, I need to step away from the sport and kind of refine my game and refine my love for the sport. And, um, one of the things that I took up funny enough was golf, uh, last year. And I played my very first ever, um, round. And I think I shot a hundred first ever round ever in my life. Good actually. Um, Right. And so I, I believe it's a, actually a 99. So afterwards, I look at my uh, boyfriend and, you know, he's the one that had taught me. And uh, I look at him and I was like, that's it. Like, I need to take this up. And then the next day, I think I shot a 116 and I wanted to throw every single golf club in the in the lake. And I was like, holy cow, this is such a it, it's such a competitive athlete kind of thinking that you just think, well, I'm a professional at tennis. Surely I can catch this and pick it up, you know, so quick as well. So I I can totally, I mean, listening to you speak, I'm like, has she been in my head? Like, does she know what I'm thinking? Because I can, I can totally relate. It's funny because it it creates a sense of entitlement um, that that word has a negative connotation, but if you don't have that, you cannot be successful. Like you have to have that mentality that, you can do anything and you're like superhuman. Otherwise you'll never be successful. But then the problem is once you're done playing, it's very hard to let it go. And that, you know, took a lot of hours of therapy and a lot of thousands of dollars of therapy to kind of let, let, you know, get through that and understand that, okay, you're not 
the, you know, you're not the professional athlete anymore and you're not, you have to like live life like a normal person. And that's a hard thing. I mean, it's not, people think it's such a great life and so glamorous and so fantastic. And it is while you're playing, but it's a very short, short life. And then you have the rest of your life to live. And, and the transition can be very, very, very difficult. And also you were part of a different time. Like I think now when a player is playing, if they're ranked, you know, top 100, top top 200, they can still build this incredible platform and social media and have sponsors and all yes. this other other ways for money to come in. And then they kind of fall into broadcasting or commentating. It kind of seems to be a, li- a lot easier at yes. least now compared to when you were playing. And they also got paid a lot more now. That's not fair. But yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, the, the, the thing, the main thing, that's different. I think it's the social media. I mean, the money was pretty good when we were playing. Like I was, I made, uh, I don't know, $4 million in my career, which for, for a 30 year old, that's pretty good. Um, but now, I mean, if I play, if I've been playing now, it'd probably be triple that, but it's the social media aspect. The fact that they have these followers that, you know, right now I'm in social media and it's like so hard to get followers because first of all, we're old, right? So the people that have followed me are not in social media. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm constantly trying to grow my Instagram and my Twitter feeds and posting, but it's hard. Like I said, like, like you said, because it's, we're not, um, we're not play, currently playing. So yes, it'd be nice if I had follow people who were following me then would, could follow me on social media. Now that I'd have a pretty, pretty hefty following. <laughs> if only it worked like that. Exactly. Right. I mean, I, uh, I still think social media followings are hard to build even now, but especially if you'd been on TV now and, and playing now, it'd be a lot easier for sure. It's just so automatic. Some of these players get like a million in a, in a, in a year. It's insane. It's such a competitive thing too. I mean, this is totally random, but um, I'm a fellow ACC player, Georgia Tech over here. So I know that you went to uh, Clem- Clemson for a semester. Is One that year. right? One year. Okay. So um, we always love to talk college. I mean, we're all about college tennis, Nina and I. Um, she went to UCLA and then went to Missouri. So we're hardcore college tennis uh, followers. So my question to you is, you know, what made you decide to go to college for a year? And then what made you decide to turn pro after? Okay. So basically, I had no other option but to go to college because I, I grew up in Puerto Rico and in Puerto Rico in the 60s and 70s, I had no role models and there was no really good instructor. And I was actually very, very lucky that a coach found me at, I, because the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association. I was allowed to play nationals. So a coach saw me and offered me a scholarship. But, you know, I had a slice forehand and a slice backhand because the the teachers in Puerto Rico refused to teach top spin to girls because we the girls were not strong enough and this is back in the 80s before Borg right I was right around when Borg was playing and Borg was the first uh, person to have to really hit top spin on the ball so so I really had to develop my game in college like I never in my life practiced drilled the cross court forehands and cross court backhands until I went to college I was um, kind of crazy so the first year in college I had I had an amazing year because I played every day and I, my improvement was um, kind of astronomical. When you play tennis every day, you're going to get better, especially if you've never done it in your whole life. So then I ended up making um, the finals of NCAAs. I played number two at Clemson. And and now, th- remember, this is in the 80s, right? So the girl that I was playing was supposedly ranked 27th in the world. That was like the word on the street, right? But there's no internet, there's no cell phones. And it's like, how do you know, when somebody says they're ranked 27th in the world, how do you verify that? Because you can't look it up. 
right? So it's like, oh, I'm playing this player. She says she's 27th in the world. I almost beat her. It was seven, six and a third. And then a couple months later, I'm watching the Wimbledon and this girl I almost beat is playing Billie Jean King in the round of 16 at Wimbledon in a you know, Monday epic match. It was like eight, six and a third. Her name was Beth Her, and she almost beat Billie Jean King. And that's the first time that I went, oh my God, like I almost beat that girl. So maybe I have a chance to be a pro. That's the first time that the thought really came to me that maybe I could one day be a pro. So, so, um, so I took the summer and played and then I was going to go back to college and I asked my coach if he would guarantee that I would play number one because I played number two the previous year and he couldn't guarantee it because the girl coming back was a senior. He said I would have to play a challenge match and I'm sure you guys hated challenge matches as much as every player hates challenge matches. Um, so I decided to take the fall off and after the fall I was ranked 86th in the world in singles. So then I figured that was it was time to turn pro. So then I turned pro. Yeah, it seems also a bit different then as well, how connected um, college players and pro players, it would have all kind of been a little bit more, it just seems so separate now. Like when I think of a college player, I'm like, they're probably ranked best case scenario, maybe 500, 400 in the world. Yeah, no, back then college players had pro rankings. And- yeah. And if playing a summer would get you like a couple points, nothing crazy, unless you, I don't know, went and won the US Open. But yeah, it's a bit different. You mentioned Puerto Rico. So you were born in Puerto Rico, you played for Puerto Rico, you played for America. What's your relationship like with Puerto Rico? Are you famous there? I mean, what's the, the connection, I guess? Oh, God, that's a, the question that I didn't want to answer. But yeah, no, so um, <laughs> it's very complicated with Puerto Rico. I'm born and raised in Puerto Rico. I left Puerto Rico when I was 18. And I've been back every year, three or four times a year until my dad passed away last year. So I have not been back since he passed away. But, um, but I'm, you know, Puerto Rican and like, you know how they say you can take the girl out of Puerto Rico, but you can't take Puerto Rico out of the girl. I'm definitely a Boricua and very proud of it. Um, I represented Puerto Rico as a junior. And um, when I became a pro, it was you know, back in the day, um, Puerto Rico, like I said, was part of the United States Tennis Association. So there was Puerto Rico did not have sports sovereignty in, in tennis. We did have Olympic t- Olympic sports, baseball, basketball, but the tennis was part of the United States Tennis Association, so we did not have our own team. So in the 90s, a group of uh, people in Puerto Rico got together and petitioned to basically separate from the USDA, which would have been really bad for tennis, for tennis in Puerto Rico. You never want to separate from the USDA, if you, if you know what I mean. But what happened was they created two associations. One was the um, Puerto Rico Tennis Association and one was the Caribbean Tennis Association. Caribbean became part of the USDA and the Puerto Rican Tennis Association became part of the ITF. Then we could have our own Olympic team. That happened in 91. The, for the Olympics in 92, I had to pick between playing for Puerto Rico and the U.S. But really, the, I didn't really have to pick because Puerto Rico didn't, didn't have a team yet. We were still in that legal process of trying to become uh, a sports nation. And there was a possibility that we would be, but there was not a guarantee that we would be. And even if I had played for Puerto Rico, there was no other person I could play with. And I was already by that point, number one in the world in doubles. So if I was going to win a gold medal, it was going to be playing for the United States with, uh, you know, with that American. So I chose to play for the United States, you know, subsequently won two Olympic gold medals. And it's been very, very, very controversial in Puerto Rico uh, for all this time, particularly two years ago when Monica Puig won the, when the, uh, won the Olympic gold medal for Puerto Rico, that all kind of came back and to haunt me. I figured that that was over because a lot of people are really upset that I went to play for 
for the United States. And, uh, and the people that didn't really understand tennis were, they were saying, well, if Monica could do it, so could you have. And it was like, no, I couldn't have because I didn't play singles. I played doubles. Um, so, so yeah, but I'm really happy that Monica won a gold medal for Puerto Rico. Um, it was obviously one of the proudest moments for every Puerto Rican and the planet, including me. I was super, super excited when she won it. So, so yeah, that's my story. I mean, wow. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. So it's a, it's complicated. It sounds extremely complicated and delicate and everything. But at the end of the day, you still won two gold medals. So I mean, correct. Yes. Contrary to what I have heard other people say, I am still the first Puerto Rican to win an Olympic gold medal. And no one's ever going to take that away from you, no matter what country you represent. You, those gold medals belong right. to you. I know, but some people try, but they won't succeed. Can't let the haters stop you, Gigi. You just can't let them. Dab on the haters, right? <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Well, um, so the French Open is coming up soon. Obviously, you have some fond memories of that slam. Do you think you'll make an appearance this year? Is it a uh, slam that you go to every year? Yeah, one one of the things that I do with Gigi Fernandez Tennis, other than the camps and the clinics, um, is that I bring people to Grand Slams. I bring I have little boutique um, trips to the Grand Slams. So I have eight or nine clients that are coming with me. So I'll be there the second week. Um, so I'm yeah, really looking forward to it. I'm super excited. There's a Puerto Rican girl qualified for the juniors. Lauren Anzalota is her name. Um, she's um, the next you know player after Monica that has some potential to perhaps be a pro someday. So I'm in you know I've been helping her out. I'm in communication with her and her mom, and I gave her some financial help throughout the way and mental and emotional support. Um, so I'm really excited that she qualified because I'll get to see her play there. So looking forward to that. What do you, what's your preference? Is it French Open? Is it Roland Garros? What, what's, what's, what are we supposed to be calling it? Ah, uh, Roland Garros. It's the official way. Do you, uh, do you have a favorite, uh, a favorite memory that stands out to you whenever you, when you go back there and you're, you're walking the grounds? Does anything ever hit you? Because you've won it six times. <sighs> Does anything ever hit me? Um, my favorite memory of Paris is the restaurant called Lentricot that is on Rue Marbeuf. And I used to eat there like seven times a in the, Two weeks that I was there. Steak and frites. Steak and frites. You got it. Yep. My favorite restaurant <laughs> in the world. And then the winning, you know, it was not my favorite Grand Slam to win because we had an odd time for our matches. It was usually like at 11 a.m. the day of the finals and there was no one there ever. So that was kind of disappointing. But yeah, it was fun to win. I made the finals seven years in a row and it was a good, good stretch. But I really preferred Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and the Australian Open were as far as the tennis goes, as far as the Grand Slam itself, I think it's a great Grand Slam because it's the closest one to the city. So you truly can enjoy Paris um, as a city and still play in the Grand Slam. The other ones are hard, like US Open, kind of hard to get from New York back and forth and Wimbledon, London is too far away. So yeah, I really enjoyed staying and being part of having the Paris life for two weeks. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean there. Exactly. I've been to all four. So yeah, there's a bit of a difference for sure. I think I think that's pretty much it in terms of uh, this episode with uh, with Gigi Fernandez. But I think my only other comment would have been when you look at the players now. I mean, I think I've noticed a lot of singles players are actually picking up doubles more than they were before. We have like young players playing, like Denis Shapovalov is playing, Tsitsipas is playing, um, Ostapenko is playing doubles. Do you think that there's a shift going back towards doubles where singles players are more interested in it again? No, I think I, I see it. I, I have see, I have noticed that, and I think it's great because for a lot of years, um, okay, I mean, I retired 20 years ago, and when I was playing, 
all the singles players played doubles. The, the, Martin, the two Martinas, Lindsay Davenport, Tiffy Graf, uh, Rancha Sanchez, Conchita Martinez. I mean, the list, Gabriela Sabatini, they all played, they all played, uh, played doubles. And then there was like a lull when no one played. And, um, and I think maybe because of the modified sets, even though I don't like it, I don't like the way we're scoring doubles. Um, but because of that, maybe some of the players, um, you know, it's not as strenuous and the, the matches are not as long. So maybe that's why they're playing. I think that makes sense. It definitely feels like it's more more singles friendly, I guess, is the, the right term. Okay. Um, well, thank you for your time. I really appreciated it. I think this has been really, really interesting and really, I wasn't really sure which way we'd go, what direction we'd go, but I kind of love where we went with this. Well, I'm glad I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on and uh, follow me on social media. <laughs> yeah, wait, your, uh, your website's ggfernandeztennis.com. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then your Twitter is? Gigi Fernandez. Simple, easy. Got it. Okay. And perfect. Instagram is way on top of it. Gigi Fernandez Tennis 17. Okay. All right. I see. Oh, the 17 is for the slams, right? You got it. I nailed it. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Gigi. Bye. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.